Chapter 3 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 3, by Margaret O. Ollivant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, A Late Visitor. He was not a frequent visitor. Indeed, it is doubtful whether, save for a visit of ceremony, he had ever been there before. As it was so near bedtime, the fire was low, and the two candles on the table gave very little light in the dark, wainscoted room. Outside it had seemed a ruddy little star of domestic comfort, but within the prospect was less cheerful. They had been preparing to go to bed. Mrs. John's work was carefully folded and put away. Even the little litter of thimbles and thread on the table had been tidied, as her usage was. A book lying open, which was Hester's, was the only trace of occupation, and the dark walls seemed to quench and repel the little light, except in some polished projection here and there where there was a sort of reflection. Mrs. John hastily lit the two candles on the mantelpiece, which were always ready, in case anyone should come in, and which mirrored themselves with a sort of astonishment in the little glass against which they stood. She was eager to be hospitable, though she had a somewhat warm realization of Edward as on the other side. Perhaps, indeed, this of itself made her more anxious to show him every attention as a sort of magnanimous way of showing that she bore no malice. "'It is rather too late to offer you tea,' she said. "'But perhaps a glass of wine, Hester, for it is a cold night and your cousin has had a long walk. I am very much relieved to hear that Catherine is quite well. For the first moment, I confess, I was very much alarmed.' for she has used her head a great deal, and people say that paralysis... I don't think she is at all a subject for that. Her nerves are in perfect order, Edward said. That is a great thing to say for the strongest of us, said Mrs. John, sitting down in her chair again and furtively drawing her shawl round her, for he could not surely mean to stay long at that hour, and it seemed a pity to put more coals on the fire. Nerves is the weak point with most ladies. I know, to be sure, that Catherine is a very remarkable person, and not at all like the ordinary run. She has a masculine mind, I have always heard. You are like Hester. You are not at the ball tonight. But you go generally, I hope? I go sometimes. There was no particular attraction tonight, said Edward. He saw that Hester understood, and that the ready color rose to her face. How he longed to take the little tedious mother by the shoulders and send her upstairs! a sort of longing for sympathy, for someone to share his second and hidden life with him, had seized upon him. He could not have told her all, even if he could have got Hester to himself, but he would have told her something, enough to keep the too full cup from running over. But Mrs. John settled herself as comfortably as she could in her chair. She tried to keep awake and make conversation. She would not allow one of the opposite side to suppose that she was wanting in courtesy. Hester sat down in the background and said nothing. She did not share Edward's faith that her mother would soon be tired out and leave them to themselves, but it was impossible that she should not to some extent share his excitement of suspense and be anxious to know what he had to say. "'I like young men to go to balls,' Mrs. John said. "'Where could they be so well as amusing themselves among their own kind of people?' And though perhaps Ellen may be a little silly, you know, I am sure she means well. That is what I always say to Hester. Young people are apt to judge severely, but Ellen always meant well. She might promise too much now and then, but so do we all. It is so easy to make yourself agreeable by just saying what will please, 
but then sometimes it is very difficult to carry it out. Nothing could be more true, said Edward with a little bow. Yes, it is very true, continued Mrs. John. It seems also easy at the moment, but afterwards you have to take into consideration whether it was suitable or not, and whether the person is just the right kind, and to make everything fit, and all that is so difficult. Then there was a little pause, and Mrs. John began to feel very sleepy. Do you often take a walk so late? she said. Oh, I know some gentlemen do. Hester's poor papa, but then there was the club. I used always to think it was the club. Indeed, I ought to apologize for venturing to ask admission at such an hour, said Edward. I should not have taken it upon me had not Hester come out to the gate. Oh, that does not matter a bit, said Mrs. John, waving her hand. She could scarcely keep her eyes open. After eleven o'clock, for the hour had struck since he came in, Catherine ought to have had a stroke, at least, to justify such a late visit. "'You are sure you are not keeping anything from us about poor dear Catherine?' she said anxiously. "'Oh, I think it is always better if there is any misfortune to say it out at once.' Thus the conversation, if conversation it could be called, went on for some time. Hester did not say a word. She sat a little behind them, looking at them, herself in a state of growing impatience and suspense. What could he have to say that made him come at such an hour? And was it possible that he ever could get it said? There went on for some time longer an interchange of hesitating remarks. Mrs. John got more and more sleepy. Her eyes closed in spite of herself when Edward spoke. She opened them again widely when his voice stopped and smiled and said something which was generally wide of the mark. At last Hester rose and came to the back of her chair and stooped over her. "'Mamma, you are very tired. Don't you think you had better go to bed?' "'I hope,' cried Edward. "'I fear that my ill-time visit—' "'Not for the world, dear,' said Mrs. John in an undertone. "'No doubt he'll be going presently.' "'Oh, no, you must not think anything of the sort. We often sit up much later than this.' And she sat very upright in her chair and opened her eyes wide, determined to do her duty at all hazards. Then Edward rose and looked at Hester with an entreaty which she could not resist. She was so anxious, too, to know what he wanted. "'Don't come out, mother. I will open the door for Edward,' she said. "'But you don't know the right turn of the key.' "'Well, then, perhaps, if your cousin will excuse me. But be sure you lock the door right. It is a difficult door. Put the key in it as far as it will go, and then turn it to the right. Let me see.' Is it the right? I know it is the wrong way, not the way you generally turn a key. Well then, good night. I hope you don't think it very uncivil of me to leave you to Hester, Mrs. John said, shaking hands, with that extremely wide-awake look which sleepy persons put on. Edward went out into the dark passages, following Hester and her candle with a sense of something that must be said to her now. He had not thought of this when he set out. Then he had been merely excited, glad of the relief of the air and silence, scarcely aware that he wanted to pour out his soul into the bosom of someone who would understand him, of her who alone, he thought, could be trusted fully. But the obstacles, the hindrances, had developed this longing. Why should he have made so inappropriate a visit except under the stimulus of having something to say? And she too was now expecting breathlessly something which he must have to say. When she set down her candle and opened the door into the veranda, she turned round instinctively to hear what it was. 
The white moon shone down straight through the glass roof, throwing black shadows of all the wintry plants in the pots, and of the two who stood curiously foreshortened by the light above them. She did not ask anything, but her whole attitude was a question. He took both her hands in his hands. It is nothing, he said. That is, I don't know what there is to tell you. I had come to a conclusion after a great deal of thought. I had settled to begin in a new way, and I felt that I must talk it over, that I couldn't keep it silent, and there is no one I could speak to with freedom but you. She did not withdraw her hands or show any surprise at his confidence, but only whispered, What is it, Edward? breathlessly with all the excitement that had been gathering in her. I don't know how I can tell you, he said. It is only business. If I were to go into details, you wouldn't understand. It is only that I've made up my mind to a new course of action. I am burning my ship, Esther. I must get rid of this shut-up life somehow. I have gone in to win. A great fortune. Or to lose. Edward, she said with an unconscious pressure of his hands. Tell me, I think I could understand. So long as you feel with me, that is all I want, he said. I feel better now that I have told you. We shall make our fortune, dear, or... But there is no or. We must succeed. I know we shall. And then, Hester, my only love... He drew close to her and kissed her in his excitement, straining her hands. It was not a love kiss, but the expression of that agitation which was in his veins. She drew back from him in astonishment, but not in anger, understanding it so. What is it? To win a great fortune or to lose? What? Edward, you are not risking other people, she said. Pshaw, he said, almost turning away from her. Then next moment, never mind other people, Hester. That will come all right. I hope you don't think I am a fool. I have made a new departure, that is all, and with everything in my favor. Wish me good luck and keep my secret. It seemed too big for me to keep all by myself. Now that I have put half of it upon you, I shall be able to sleep. But you have not told me anything, she said, upon which he laughed a little in an agitated way and said, Perhaps that is all the better. You know everything, and yet you know nothing. I have been kept in long enough and done as other people would, not as I wish myself. And now that is over. There is no one in the world to whom I would say so much but you. Hester was pleased and touched to the bottom of her heart. Oh, if I could only help you, she cried, if I could do anything, or if you would tell me more, I know I could understand. But anyhow, if it is a relief to you to tell me just as much as that, I am glad. Only if I could but help you. At present, no one could help. It is fortune that must decide. You mean providence, said Hester softly. She had never used the phraseology of religious sentiment as many girls do at her age, and was very shy in respect to it. But she added under her breath, And one can always pray. At this Edward, which was a sign of grace in him, though she did not know it as such, drew back with a hasty movement. It gave him a strange sensation to think of the success which he was seeking by such means being prayed for, as if it had been a holy enterprise. But just then Mrs. John stirred audibly within, as if about to come and inquire into the causes of the delay. He kissed her again tenderly, without any resistance on her part, and said, "'Good night. Good night. I must not say any more.' Hester opened the outer door for him, letting in the cold night air. It was a glorious night, still as only winter is, the moonlight filling up everything. She stood for a moment, looking after him as he crossed the threshold. 
When he had made a few steps into the night, he came back again hastily and caught her hands once more. Hester, we win or lose. Will you come away with me? Will you give up all this for me? You don't love it any more than I do. Will you come with me and be free? Edward, you don't think what you are saying. You forget my mother, she said. He gave an impatient stamp with his foot. Contradiction was intolerable to him or any objection at this moment. Then he called good night again more loudly into the air as though to reach Mrs. John in the parlor and hurried away. Edward was a long time saying good night, said Mrs. John. I suppose you were talking about the ball. That is always what happens when you give up a thing for a whim. You always regret it after. I suppose you would both have preferred to be there. I suppose that is why he came in this evening, a thing he never did in his life before. Well, I must say, we were all indebted, more or less, to Ellen Merridew, Hester. She has drawn us together in a way there never was any chance of in the old times. Fancy Edward Vernon coming into our house in that sort of unceremonious way. It was too late. I would never encourage a gentleman to come so late. But still it showed a friendly spirit and a confidence that he would be welcome, which is always nice. I must tell him next time I see him that I shall be delighted at any time to have him here, only not quite so late at night. I dare say it will not happen again, Hester said. Why shouldn't it happen again? It is the most natural thing in the world. Only I shall tell him that usually we are all shut up by ten o'clock. It did give me a great fright to begin with, for I thought he must have come to tell us that Catherine was ill. She has always been so strong and well that I shouldn't wonder at all if it was something sudden that carried her off in the end, and whenever it does come it will be a great shock. Besides that, it will break up everything. This house will probably be sold, and Catherine Vernon does not look at all like dying, Hester said. Please do not calculate upon what would happen. My dear, it does not make a thing happen a day the sooner that we take it into consideration, for we will have to when the time comes. We shall all have to leave our houses, and it will make a great deal of difference. Of course, we can't expect her heirs to do the same kind of thing as Catherine has done. No, I confess that was what I thought, and it was a great relief to me to hear. Did you lock the door, Hester? I hope you remember to turn the key the wrong way. The fire is quite safe, I think, and I have shut the shutters. Carry the candle and let us go to bed. Mrs. John continued to talk while they were undressing, though she had been so sleepy during Edward's visit. She would permit no hasty manipulation of Hester's hair, which had to be brushed for twenty minutes every night. She thought its beauty depended upon this manipulation and never allowed it to be omitted, and as this peaceful exercise was gone through, and her mother's gentle commentary ran on, it is impossible to describe the force of repressed thought and desire for silence and quiet which was in Hester's veins. She answered at random when it was necessary to answer at all, but Mrs. John took no notice. She had been roused up by that curious visit. She took longer time than usual for all her own little preparations, and was more particular than usual about the hair-brushing. The fire was cheerful in the outer room, which was the mother's, and on account of this fire it was the invariable custom that Hester should do her hair-brushing there. Her mother even tried a new way of arranging Hester's hair. So full was she of that mental activity which so often adds to the pangs of those who are going through a secret crisis. It seemed hours before the girl was finally allowed to put out the candle and steal back into the cold moonlight. 
into her own little room where the door always stood open between her and her mother. Hester would have liked to close that door. Her thoughts seemed too big, too tumultuous not to betray themselves. Soon, however, Mrs. John's calm, regular breathing showed her to be asleep, and then Hester felt free to deliver herself up to that torrent of thought. Was it possible that not very long since she had scorned herself for almost sharing Emma's ignoble anxiety that he should speak? It had chafed and fretted her almost beyond endurance to feel herself thus on the same level as Emma, obliged to wait till he should declare his wishes, feeling herself so far subordinate and dependent, an attitude which her pride could not endure. Now he had spoken indeed, not in the conventional way, saying he loved her and asking her to marry him, as people did in books. Edward had taken it for granted that she was well aware of his love. How could it be otherwise? Had not she known from the beginning, when their eyes met, that there was an interchange in that glance, different from and more intimate than all the intercourse she had ever had with others? Even when she had been so angry with him, when he had passed by her in Catherine Vernon's parties with but that look, indignant as she had been, was there not something said and replied to by their eyes, such as had never passed between her and any other all her life long? My only love! She knew she was his only love. The remembrance of the words made her heart beat, but she felt now that she had known them all along. Since the first day when they had met on the common, she a child, he in the placidity of unawakened life, there had been nobody to each but the other. She knew and felt it clearly now. She had known it and felt it all along, she said to herself, but it had wanted that word to make it flash into the light. And how unlike ordinary love-making it all was! He had come to her not out of any stupid doubt about her response to him, not with any intention of pleading his own cause, but only because his burden was too much for him, his heart too full, and she was the only one in all the world upon whom to lean it. Esther said to herself with fine scorn that to suppose the question, do you love me, to be foremost in a man's mind when he was fully immersed in the business and anxieties of life was to make of love not a great but a petty thing. How could he fail to know that as he had looked upon her all those years, so she had looked upon him? My only love, the words were delightful, like music to her ears, but still more musical was the thought that he had come to her not to say them, that he had come to lean upon her, upon her arm and her heart, to tell her that something had happened to him which he could not tell to anyone else in the world, to think that he should have been drawn out of his home along the wintry road out into the night solely on the hope of seeing her and reposing his overfull mind upon her, conveyed to Hester's soul a proud happiness, a sense of noble befittingness and right which was above all the usual pleasure, she thought, of a newly disclosed love. He had disclosed it in the noblest way, by knowing that it needed no disclosure, by coming to her as the other part of him when he was in utmost need. Had Edward calculated deeply the way to move her, he could not have chosen better, but he did it instinctively, which was better still, truly needing, as he said, that outlet which only the most intimate unity of being, the closest of human connections, could give. Hester could think of nothing but this in the first rapture. There were other things to be taken into consideration. What the momentous step was which he had taken, and what was the meaning of that wild proposal at the end? 
to go away with him, win or lose. She would not spoil the first sweet impression with any thought of these, but dropped to sleep at last, saying to herself, My only love, with a thrill of happiness beyond all words. She believed she would not sleep at all, so overflowing was her mind with subjects of thought. But these words were a sort of lullaby which put the other, more important matters out of her head. My only love. If it was he who had said them, or she who had said them, she could scarcely tell. They expressed everything, the meaning of so many silent years. Edward was making his way as quietly as possible into the house which had been his home for so many years, while Hester turned over these things in her mind. He had loitered on the way back, saying to himself that if Catherine should chance not to be asleep, it was better that she should suppose him to have gone to the marriage use. He felt himself something like a thief in the night as he went in, taking his candle and going softly up the carpeted stairs not to disturb her, a proceeding which was for his sake, not for hers, for he had no desire to be questioned in the morning and forced to tell petty lies, a thing he disliked, not so much for the sake of the lies as for the pettiness of them. But Catherine, disturbed by a new anxiety which she did not understand, was lying awake and did hear him, cautious as he was. She said to herself, He has not stayed long tonight, with a sense half of satisfaction, half of alarm. Never before, during all the years he had been under her roof, had this feeling of insecurity been in her mind before. She did not understand it, and tried to put it aside and take herself to task for a feeling which did Edward injustice, good as he was and had always been, in his relations with her. If some youthful tumult was in his mind, unsettling him, there was nothing extraordinary in that. If he was in love, that natural solution of youthful agitations. It is common to say and think that mothers and those who stand in a mother's place are jealous of a newcomer and object to be no longer the first in their child's affections. Catherine smiled in the dark as she lay watching and thinking, this should not stand in Edward's way, provided that he made a right choice. But whatever choice he made, it would be for him, not her, she reflected, with a magnanimity almost beyond nature, and it would be strange if she could not put up with it for his sake. She had not, indeed, the smallest idea in which direction his thoughts had turned. But there was something in the air which communicated alarm. When Hester woke next morning, it was not with the same sense of beatitude which had wrapped her from all other considerations on the previous night, notwithstanding her high certainty that the mere love declared was but secondary in her mind to the noble necessity of having to share the burdens and bear part in the anxieties of her lover. Everything else he had said had in fact been little to her in comparison with the three words which had been going through her mind and her dreams the whole night, and which sprang to her lips in the morning like an exquisite refrain of happiness, but which gradually, as she began to think, went back out of the foreground, leaving her subject to questions and thoughts of a very different description. What had the crisis been through which he had passed? What was the new departure, the burning of the ships? There must be some serious meaning in words so serious as these. And then that wild suggestion that she should fly with him, whether they gained or lost, away from all this. You don't love it any more than I do. What did that mean? Alarm was in her mind, along with the excitement of a secret half-revealed. An eager and breathless longing to see him again, to know what it meant, gained possession of her mind. Then there floated back into her ears 
Roland's remark, which had half offended her at the time, which she had thought unnecessary, almost impertinent, that Edward lost his head. In what did he lose his head? She remembered the whole conversation as her mind went back to it. Edward was too hot and eager. He had a keen eye, but he lost his head. He was tired of the monotony of his present life. And then there came his own statement about burning his ships. What did it all mean? She began to piece everything together, dimly as she could with her imperfect knowledge. She had no training in business and did not know in what way he could risk in order to gain, though of course this was a commonplace, and she had often heard before of men who had lost everything or gained everything in a day. But when Hester thought of the bank and of all the peaceable wealth with which Vernon's was associated, and of the young men going to their office tranquilly every day, and the quiet continual progress of their affairs, she could not understand how everything could hang upon a chance, how fortune could be gained or lost in a moment. It was scarcely more difficult to imagine the whole economy of the world dropping out in a moment, the heavens rolling up like a scroll, and the foundations of the earth giving away, than to imagine all that long-established framework of money-making collapsing, so that one of the chief workers in it could talk of burning his ships, and suggest a moment when he should fly away from all this, which could only mean from every established order of things, that her heart should rise with a sense of danger, and that she should be ready to give her anxious help and sympathy and eager attention to the mystery, whatever it was, did not make any difference in Hester's sudden anxiety and alarm. The earth seemed to tremble under her feet. Her whole life and the action of the world itself seemed to hang in suspense. She did what she had never in her life thought possible before. She went out early, pretending some little business, and hung about on the watch, with her veil down and her mind in a tumult impossible to describe, to meet Edward, if possible, on his way to the bank. Could it be Hester, so proud, so reserved as she was, that did this? Her cheeks burned and her heart beat with shame. But it seemed to her that she could not endure the suspense, that she must see and question him, and know what it was. But Edward had gone to the bank earlier than usual, which was a relief as well as a disappointment unspeakable to her. She stole home, feeling herself the most shameless, the least modest of girls, yet wondered whether she could restrain herself and keep still, and not make another effort to see him, for how could she live in this suspense? Punishment came upon her, condign and terrible. She fell into the hands of Emma Ashton, who was taking a little walk along the road in the morning, to wake her up a little, she said, after the ball last night, and who, utterly unconscious of Hester's trouble and agitated looks, had so many things to tell her and turned back with her, delighted to have a companion. For though a little exercise is certainly the best thing for you, it is dull when you take it all by yourself, Emma said. End of chapter 3. Read by Anne Erickson, Toronto.